Hello, this is Dan Eisenman, and I'm the Executive Director of Biosafety Services at Advara. I'm really excited to be joined by Dr. Adam Soloff and Dr. Paul Gulig for the third episode of Advara in Conversations With. Today, we're going to delve into the exponential rise of gene therapy, gene therapy's potential to bring breakthroughs across disease states, and what we need from a regulatory perspective to bring this promise to patients. As part of biosafety services, I run the Institutional Biosafety Committee, or IBC, which focuses on review of research involving gene therapy and genetic engineering. Clinical research professionals are likely familiar with the role of the IRB in terms of assessing risks to human research subjects. The IBC has a slightly different focus. It focuses on assessing the risks involved with engineered genetic material, not just to research subjects, but to the research staff, the community, and the environment around the research site. With that said, let's turn it to my colleagues so they can introduce themselves. Paul? Hi, I'm Paul Gulig. I'm an IBC vice chair at Ibarra. I'm also a professor in the Department of Molecular Genetics and Microbiology at the University of Florida College of Medicine, where I've been on the faculty for 33 years. I study antibiotic development and also how bacteria cause disease. I'm also the chair of the University of Florida Institutional Biosafety Committee. With that, I'll turn it over to Adam. Hi, I'm Adam Soloff. I'm an ADVAR IBC committee member and scientific reviewer. I'm also an assistant professor in the Department of Cardiothoracic Surgery at the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine and a cancer immunologist at the UPMC Hillman Cancer Center. Very good. So with that, Adam and Paul, should we get started? Sure. Let's go. Okay. So why don't we just start by simply defining what is gene therapy research? So the definition that that I like to use starts with uh, gene therapy involves the delivery of engineered genetic material to humans with the goal of compensating for genetic mutations, conferring the capability to produce potentially therapeutic substances, or eliciting immune responses to fight disease. And for the folks that are caught up in the technical uh, definitions, when we talk about engineered genetic material, we're talking about recombinant or synthetic nucleic acid molecules as defined by NIH guidelines. Now, just to introduce folks to the uh, booming growth of gene therapy, bear in mind that less than a decade ago, gene therapy research was really limited to uh, major academic medical centers. We're talking early stage, early phase trials, very experimental under very controlled, limited conditions, and things have grown dramatically. And the FDA issued the approval for the very first FDA-approved gene therapy in 2015, which was a genetically engineered virus for use in melanoma. And there have been a dramatic increase in the number of FDA approvals. And the FDA is actually expecting to have approvals issued regularly by the year 2025. Now, with that said, Paul, Adam, what do you think are some of the factors that have contributed to the exponential rise of gene therapy research? Well, you know, I think something that really needs to be emphasized, and it it really isn't germane only to gene therapy, but it's decades of very basic fundamental research that have shown us how our cells work physiologically and the genetic basis for that 
And as a microbiologist as well, I think how we understand bacterial and viral pathogens and, and what it takes for them you know, to cause disease. So the thing I would start off by emphasizing is a lot of people might immediately jump to our ability of doing recombinant genetics, which is on the, the end side of, of gene therapy, but without a very fundamental basic understanding of how our cells work and how the microbes that cause disease work, especially how cancer works, we wouldn't even know where to begin to start with gene therapy. I, I fully agree. I mean, what we can do now is exceptional, but this is this has been built off the, you know, the hard work of brilliant scientists for decades and decades that we have that that basic fundamental knowledge of how the genetic code works, how we can manipulate it. So this didn't occur overnight. And I, I like to think about in addition to just the knowledge that we've enhanced our our understanding as humans, um, we, we've also increased our technical capacities. You know, I always laugh that I got my first cell phone when I was in college. Uh, I mean, the the pace of technological development is exponential. And that, that translates to medicine too. The fact that we talk about personalized medicine and in, in, uh, genetic engineering, and we can do this in an effective and in a safe manner is, is something that would have been science fiction. I love how you just expressed that. And I'll tell you, we didn't collaborate on this we didn't compare notes in advance. <laughs> I actually have a slide for when I talk about this subject. It talks about FDA approvals and how gene therapy is no longer science fiction. But, you know, there's still a, a good amount of meat on the bone in terms of talking about just the massive growth that's going on here. So um, I mentioned the first FDA approval for gene therapy was in 2015. 2017, there were three approvals issued. And then things have grown to the point where just looking at where we are right now. So right now we're at the end of April, 2021, there were two FDA approved gene therapies in the month of March alone. Both of them involved genetically modified cells, human cells for use in B cell cancer. So when we talk about personalized medicine for cancer, that's definitely something that we can, that we can talk about. And, you know, going back to the slides that I mentioned, you know, previously I could fit all of the approved drugs or approved gene therapies on one slide and have ample room left over. <laughs> now I'm at the point where I actually have to break them out into separate slides based on disease indication, because there are so many approved gene therapies. In 2019, the FDA made a statement. So this was then Commissioner Scott Gottlieb and Peter Marks, who's the director of the FDA Center for Biologics Evaluation and Research. They issued a statement saying that gene therapy is at the point where monoclonal antibodies were in the late 90s. And the mainstreaming of monoclonal antibodies are currently seen as the backbone of modern treatment regimens. And that's where they anticipate gene therapy is going as, as a, a backbone of modern treatments. And in that same statement that said that they expect there to be 10 to 20 FDA approved gene therapies per year by 2025. So this area is definitely experiencing booming growth. Absolutely. I, I think, you know, I, we might touch on it later, but it's also impressive, you know, when you think about our current response to the COVID pandemic, right? And that you've gone from many, many, many trials that are phase ones and phase twos, which are, you know, um, small amounts of subjects to test for safety and test for proper responses. But now we've seen genetically engineered products in millions, 
what, hundreds of tens of millions, hundreds of millions? Where are we now? Exactly. So many people may not be aware, but the frontline vaccines against SARS-CoV-2 or, you know, COVID-19 are vaccines that contain engineered genetic material. They required IBC review. And now, and Adam is right, as of April 2021, we're over 100 million vaccines administered in the United States. So we've come a very long way from uh, technology that was limited to early phase trials in major academic medical centers under highly uh, controlled experimental conditions. Now you can go and get a vaccine with emergency use authorization throughout your community, including large chains of pharmacies. You know, I just want to put a placeholder in. I know a little later we'll talk about impediments to the acceptance of gene therapy, but I think when the COVID mRNA vaccines came out, we know that in social media, especially, there was a, were a lot of misconceptions about what was happening there, you know, with mRNA being injected into our cells and, and with the uh, adeno-vectored COVID vaccines actually delivering a gene that was being expressed. I think we have a, a long way to go in terms of educating the lay public into what different forms of gene therapy are and, uh, and what they are not. And, and now, you know, the, the spectrum is very wide, you know, from adding genes that will be hopefully expressed for the lifetime of the patient to the mRNAs, where the uh, mRNAs are, are, are hanging around maybe only for hours, but still doing their job in, in an effective way. So I, I agree that the, the, uh, the COVID vaccines have thrown this to the forefront. So I think those of us in the field as, um, as educators and as people involved in the oversight, it's really incumbent on us to be educators of, of society in general. I think we, and I think we're kind of behind the curve there, but I think we can do it. I'm going to play the role of moderator here <laughs> and bring us back to where, what, yeah. our, what our initial issue was, and that was factors that contributed to the exponential rise, because I just wanted to mention a couple of things um, that really opened the door. One of them, of course, was our ability to genetically manipulate human cells. And again, as a microbiologist, you know, I have to, uh, to tout my field, although I'm not a virologist, I'm a bacteriologist, you know, the ability of using viruses to deliver genes into human cells to change their genetic makeup. And we've talked about at our IBC meetings, many, many, many cancer therapies with genetically engineered T cells called CAR T cells. And of course, the Johnson & Johnson and AstraZeneca COVID vaccines are gene therapy using adenovirus. And the other thing I wanted to, to throw in, which again is kind of a two-edged sword, is the whole uh, CRISPR-Cas genetic editing, which really opens the door for personalized medicine to be able to go in and, and change single letters of the genetic code to correct somebody's genetic defect in a very, very personalized way. So, so the, the tools are there that have really exploded over the last you know, five to 10 years. So kind of on a technological side, it almost seems like you know, the sky's the limit. Mm -hmm. I would completely agree. And talking about how treatments in oncology have come a long way. So, and, and with gene therapy, how it's very targeted and specific and personalized. So if you consider chemotherapy, right? You get a, a chemical, 
whether it's a pill or an intravenous infusion. And it goes fairly systemically, which is part of the reason you have a lot of toxicity issues. The drug doesn't just go to the cancer. So one of the benefits of using gene therapy for more targeted and personalized cancer therapies is you don't have those concerns. So Paul mentioned chimeric antigen receptor T cells or CAR T cells, and they, they are very personalized in the sense that for the autologous therapies, they, the, they actually come from the research subject. They're genetically engineered to reprogram the T cell to make it specific to the type of cancer that person has. And they've been phenomenally successful, particularly in B-cell leukemias and lymphomas. And there have been, I believe at last count, seven or eight FDA-approved CAR T-cells, CAR T-cell products specifically for B-cell leukemias and lymphomas. And particularly in cases of resistant or refractory disease. So these are research subjects and patients that have pretty much exhausted standard of care therapy. And unless some unexpected circumstance or miracle arose, they had a very poor prognosis. And these CAR T-cell therapies have been phenomenally successful. You know, my, my wife is a um, pediatric hematology oncology nurse. And, and so she's given chemotherapy to her patients for, for many years. And she's often commented how well, in the future, but the future is now, you know, we would look back on medical practice of administering these highly toxic drugs to try to, you know, treat people's cancers. And I think, as you mentioned, the the engineered CAR T cells that specifically target the the cancer cells of the patient uh, really has revolutionized that. There's only a, a few of them that have been FDA approved, but as we know, there are a multitude of clinical trials going on. And I don't think we're, you know, as, as we know from our trials, and as you mentioned, they're reserved for people who have failed the normal treatment. But I think that pretty soon they will become the normal treatment and the chemotherapy will be on the backside only for those people who failed. I'd like to kind of segue in a second into non-cancers. We focused on cancers, but there's a whole host of genetic issues such as sickle cell and hemophilia and autoimmune diseases and things that we have the capability of going in and either correcting the mutated genes or providing the normal copy of the gene to the people. And again, different people will have different mutations. And you know, to me, the challenge is how do you do clinical trials on the gene therapy when the product might be a little bit different you know, from patient to patient? So I I think when you're talking about that type of gene therapy, right, that's to me almost a completely different ballgame because what we're talking about with whether you have a a CAR T cell therapy or an mRNA that's used as a cancer vaccine in a dendritic cell, these are not permanent products, right? Well, we actually hope that the CAR T cells engraft and that they live in that person for quite a while. And that's actually associated with better treatment. But when you talk about correcting maybe diseases that are caused by genetic alterations, right? Now you're actually talking about changing a person's genetic code or the, the, you know, the genetic code of those cell types. And I think that that's, that warrants quite a bit more stringent consideration, right? I agree. I agree. They are fundamentally different. And, you know, again, kind of going for, full circle back to the COVID mRNA vaccines, 
the genetic engineering is basically gone within hours of getting the vaccine. And uh, on the other hand, if you're trying to cure somebody's sickle cell disease, you want their red blood cell producing cells to be permanently changed and to make normal red blood cells. And so again, I think that in in trying to educate the the lay public on this, it's it's really going to be a challenge so Mm -hmm. that you know, that was one of the concerns with the COVID vaccines is you're changing my DNA, which of course wasn't true, trying to tell them, no, this is something's going to happen very briefly, but it's it's going to have a, a long lasting effect, you know, on you. But on the same at the same time, if you're telling somebody with sickle cell, once we give you this, you may not need to be treated again for the rest of your life and you're going to live a completely normal life. And I think that's part of the benefit of IBC review that maybe people, a lot of people are not aware of. So the FDA looks at whether a drug is manufactured under the the best manufacturing practices and is it safe and effective. The IRB looks at human subject protection, whereas the IBC really looks specifically at the risks associated with the engineered genetic material. What are the risks to the research subject? In that regard, the IRB and the IBC work very collaboratively, but we also look at the risk to the research staff, the facility, the community, and the environment, because bear in mind that many of these engineered genetic materials either contain infectious material or genes derived from infectious material, or they're manufactured using infectious material. Genetically engineered viruses are commonly utilized Because if you think about how a virus works, it's unable to reproduce on its own. It has to be able to deliver its genetic payload into a host cell in order to hijack the machinery of that cell to then be able to make progeny viruses. So the way these work is we strip away all the genes involved in in the disease process, and you simply put the gene of interest, your, your potentially therapeutic gene, into that virus and use the virus as a delivery vehicle for a potentially therapeutic gene. And there have already been FDA-approved gene therapies that utilize this technology. So for example, um, Luxturna is one that is a treatment for retinitis pigmentosa. So this is a, a condition where children develop uh, night blindness and then progress to full blindness by adolescence. And there's an FDA-approved therapy that utilizes an adeno-associated virus that delivers a normal, healthy copy of the mutated gene into the eyes of these children. And the results are astounding. I've seen footage of kids that are, are, you know, on the verge of blindness that after therapy are able to play baseball and video games and go fishing. It's, It's phenomenal. Spinal muscular atrophy is another one where it's a rare inherited disease caused by mutation to a single gene. And it's, it's a neurodegenerative condition where children that have this disease typically die before two years of age. They, they essentially suffocate. And with this gene therapy, they're now seeing kids that are able to not just survive past two years of age, but develop normally, they're able to run around and play and and um, go to elementary school and hopefully live normal lives. This is very much a life-saving therapy. 
and one that allows the the patients to hopefully have a very high quality of life, hopefully through a natural lifespan. But those are things that we still need to see. So there's uh, phenomenal benefits of this technology. I do think kind of the to <laughs> add my two cents here, but it's extremely important to convey how much rigor goes into evaluating the safety of these products. And that that can't be kind of, it can't be minimized. You know, you have a subject who is putting their faith and trust that you are looking out for their best interest in their health, right? So this is essentially, it's, it's critically important that there's transparency there, that there's uh, there's an understanding of how these trials are actually run, which I don't think is apparent to the public that you start with a phase one of a couple subjects. And then when that seems safe, you move on to a slightly larger study with a couple more and a couple more that these take years, years and quite a, a great deal of effort all the while with patient safety in mind, you know, and that these aren't uh, genetic engineering. It's not something that's done frivolously. We're not trying to you know, change people's eye color. We're trying to cure lethal diseases, right? You know, I think um, since, since, since we're winding down, I think one of the things that will be very important in conveying to the public of what current gene therapy is not, and that is what we call, you know, the germline uh, changes where you basically change somebody's genetics so that that will then get passed on down to their children, basically fundamentally changing the human genome, which is uh, really universally banned right now for all research. And I think that, you know, that's the stuff of kind of science fiction movies. The challenge is there. And I, again, I, I come back, I'm an educator, and I think that education here is really key for us to be able to move forward and, and get people to accept it in a, in a positive way to, to open the door for the improvement of their own health. Correct. And we are um, in the beginning of a golden age, not just specifically for, for gene or not just gene therapy, but specifically in terms of vaccines against infectious diseases and cancer. We're about to see a phenomenal boom in terms of diseases that were previously not preventable, not treatable. It's a very exciting time. And personally, I love having a front row seat to, to all of this exciting research. I keep on thinking, you know, we, we talk about the future here, right? And again, we've been, I don't know how many combined years of history and recombinant DNA we have, but, um, you know, I, I love seeing these things roll out to the public. Last week, Oxford and AstraZeneca just showed really positive data with a vaccine against malaria, which is yeah. the same recombinant DNA. And you're like, wow, if you had a vaccine, I think it presents low 70s, you know, 70 some percent efficacy, you will save millions of lives, right? That's amazing. And to see this come to fruition, we're seeing it with COVID, you know, the COVID vaccine is saving lives. And I think I'm excited, you know, we can talk about the, the latest and greatest of engineering T cells for cancer or correcting mutations in cell, you know, in certain cells to alter disease. I'm excited to see this, what we can bring to the global public at scale now. And as time goes on, as our tech develops, as we get better at it, that some of those more personalized techniques and those personalized treatments are going to be scalable to be delivered instead of just your you know, specialized medical academic medical center that they can be delivered at the local pharmacy or mass produced and sent out a couple cents a shot around the world. 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, so I think we talk about this as a tool and this is a tool that does have the potential to, to revolutionize global health as we did with antibiotics, as we did with vaccines, as we did with hand-washing, right? <laughs> you know, that this is might be the next wave of how do we make people healthier, you know, better quality of living. This, this has that written all over it to me. Exactly right. And talking about the top two causes of pediatric death in the world, uh, malaria, number one, and respiratory syncytial virus are number two. And we're looking at clinical trials for vaccines against these diseases. What if we develop safe and effective vaccines that make the top two causes of childhood death in the world vaccine preventable? What kind of effect would that have for for public health, global public health, and, and what effect would it have on humanity? That's really astounding. Yeah, it'd be amazing. But uh, I see that we're, we're running low on time. So I want to give a huge thanks to Paul and Adam for joining me today and engaging in this important conversation. I also want to extend a thank you to all of those of you who are listening. And I want to thank you for letting me be a part of this conversation. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah this is great. You have, this, you have the sense that we could do this for a couple hours. If you. <laughs> Oh, and, and when I first looped you in, I, I told you this would be just like the three of us hanging out at a pub, except there, you know, there won't be any beer involved. But um, with that, we conclude the third episode of Advarin Conversations with. If you enjoyed today's discussion, keep a lookout on Advarin's social channels and on Advarin.com for our next episode. And thank you all for listening.